Turn to John 10. John 10, we'll be reading verses 22 to 30 as we conclude our series on Tulip. John 10, beginning with verse 22 here, is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered to them, and he said, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Father, this morning would you create in our hearts longing for your word. That we would hunger and thirst after your law and your statutes and your words. For we know that in them is life. In them is the Lord Jesus Christ disclosed and revealed. And so we pray that you would make us simple-hearted ones, wise through the understanding of your law as your Spirit unfolds these inspired words of truth unto us. And so we call upon you for his help, that we may have the grace to understand as he illumines our hearts and our minds with your word. This we ask through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it bears repeating as we wrap up our mini-series on Calvinism uh, using that Calvinistic acronym TULIP in our presentation of the sovereignty of God in foundation. It bears repeating now that we subscribe as Protestants to the foundational principle of the Reformation, which is sola scriptura. That is, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Not traditions, not creeds, not councils, not the wisdom and the opinions and the commandments of men, the foundation of our doctrine, our worship, but the Scripture alone. That's what it means to be Protestant, to turn to the Word of God and say, what does God's Word teach? We subscribe to that doctrine, and the fruit of that is reflected in the doctrines that we proclaim, and the doctrines we confess, and the doctrines we teach, particularly the doctrines that we have been unfolding here in this series on Calvinism. They run counterintuitive in so many ways to fallen human understanding and human wisdom. And the reason why we hold these is not to be cantankerous or divisive or schismatic, but it's because the Word teaches them. We hold to that as a foundational principle. And as soon as we say, however, that the Word of God is the foundation for our doctrines, our beliefs, and our practices, it leads us to ask a question. Well, how then do we interpret this Word? A very important question because it bears upon the controversy that we're going to have to delve into this morning as we look into the issue of the perseverance of the saints. How is it that we interpret this word? And one of the principles that emerged from the Reformation alongside the foundational proof of sola scriptura is the doctrine of the rule of faith. The doctrine of the rule of faith. 
That is, that we interpret God's Word according to the total system of doctrine that is found and contained in the Scriptures. And that means when there are uh, two competing interpretations of a passage that are uh, legitimate interpretations based upon the normal rules of interpreting texts. That is, they agree with the doctrine, I mean, rather, they agree with the words and the grammar of the sentence. Two competing interpretations. The rule of faith principle teaches that we accept the interpretation which is consistent with the biblical teaching of Scripture as a whole. Very important truth because it bears upon this entire issue this morning of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, we uh, confess as we come to this doctrine this morning that our understanding of the doctrine is already framed and shaped by the doctrines we've already proclaimed. We don't come to this doctrine with uh, blank slates or empty minds. We come to it informed already of the fact that God sovereignly chooses individuals to salvation in eternity past. That's a sovereign work of God and it is fulfilled in time. We come to this doctrine uh, with the doctrine of limited atonement in our mind. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became incarnate and died on the cross for His people to save them from their sins. And He actually accomplished redemption. He actually accomplished propitiation. He actually satisfied the wrath of God. We come to this doctrine uh, with the doctrine of irresistible grace within the backdrop as well. The idea that God sovereignly draws each and every one of the elect whom Christ died for and sovereignly applies unto them the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation. And you put all of those of those doctrinal pieces together as if it were a large puzzle, there's one that's left. And that is the perseverance of the saints. But with all of those doctrines pieced together, uh, the question is natural to ask, will any of those people, will any of those individual elect persons, the one who God sovereignly chose from eternity past, the salvation in Jesus Christ, uh, those who have had their sins uh, washed in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as He specifically atoned for their sins, of those ones who have been sovereignly drawn by God the Father, will any of those particular individuals fail to reach eternal life? That's the question. That's the question. The only way you can ask that question is with all those doctrines in the backdrop. Will any one of those sovereignly appointed, sovereignly saved, sovereignly drawn individuals ever fail to reach salvation? Well, uh, to ask the question within that framework is to answer it. No. So without any specific text of Scripture, we can hold to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Okay? That's what I'm arguing. But it's not just because we deduce this doctrine from, uh, particular, from other doctrines. We also confess this doctrine because it's taught in particular texts of the Bible. Today we're going to spend some time looking at John 10 and then we're going to branch out from there and show you surveying through the New Testament that is taught all over the Bible. First of all, we notice here this morning that Jesus unambiguously teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints here in John 10. Let's set this in its context again. We don't have to spend a lot of time here. I know that because we've already 
set up the context before, but let's just talk about it for a minute. And you can see a window into the context is in verse 21 of John 10. We didn't read it, but we looked at it before a couple of weeks ago when we examined the doctrine of limited atonement. And you see in verse 21 it says that some of the Jews who had heard Jesus, who was just talking here in the Good Shepherd discourse, some of them responded to what he's saying. Uh, they heard it and they said, uh, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed person. A demon uh, cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Uh, you see there, they're referring to Jesus' miracle in John 9 of healing the man who had been born blind from his youth. We argued, as we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, uh, that Jesus healed that blind man on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. When Jesus stood up in the midst of that feast, and he says, I am the light of this world, referring to the one of the ceremonies of that particular feast, which commemorated God leading Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of that type and shadow. And then Jesus also stood up that day and says, I am the water of life. In other words, another ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration of God providing water from the rock for Israel to sustain their life. Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of these types and shadows of this Feast of Tabernacles. And now to illustrate that, he healed this man born blind from his youth. Opening his blind eyes as an illustration of Jesus as the light. You'll also recall that after he did that, the religious leaders were very upset with him, took him to task, booted the blind man out of the synagogue because it said Jesus healed him. And so in response to this altercation that occurred over the blind man being healed, Jesus spoke back to those religious leaders in this Good Shepherd discourse. He told them that he was the Good Shepherd. He identified himself with the Good Shepherd of Ezekiel 34, who would come to punish the false shepherds of God's flock. He would call out uh, his people from under their care. and That he would uh, mend them and heal up the broken and nourish them within the context of his church. All that is backdrop now to what we're going to look at here in John 10, 22 and following. Uh, this uh, particular conversation comes about three months later. The Feast of Dedication is in the month of December. This is about three to four months uh, before Jesus was hung on the cross. It means here that we're getting to the climax of Jesus' ministry. It means that there have been many works performed by Jesus Christ to authenticate uh, his person and his office. All that is important backdrop because of the question now that emerges in verse 24. The Jews come to him and they, they said, uh, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, Very important, remember, now that we have all this context in mind of Jesus healing the blind man in John 9. Very important that we understand that this question comes at the end of Jesus' ministry after he has repeatedly shown these Jews by miracle and by teaching that he is the Christ. Think back even just through the Gospel of John how many times uh, Jesus 
has proven and demonstrated his character. And here they are, they say, tell us plainly. But Jesus said in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple. That is the temple uh, edifice that he was standing in after he had cleansed it. He said, uh, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews who heard that there said, this is an impossibility. It took us 46 years to build what we have right now. But Jesus wasn't referring to the temple. He's referring to himself as the fulfillment of the temple. Right there for them. He's telling them, I am what this is looking for. And if you destroy this, I'll raise it up in three days exactly what Jesus did in his resurrection. We have John chapter 5 where Jesus healed the paralytic. And uh, after doing so, the Pharisees and the religious leaders ganged up on Jesus for his miracle because it was done on the Lord's day. And Jesus explicitly identifies himself uh, with the Father. Saying, my Father is working and I am working. He identifies his healing of that man with the working of God. And they all understood that it was not a veiled reference to divinity, but they realized that he was claiming uh, to be God next to the Father. In John chapter 6, he performed this great miracle, which we looked at last week, at the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And it was so obvious who he was as a result of that, that the people who experienced that miracle thought that he was the prophet prophesied of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And they, uh, they tried to ordain him as king until he slipped out of their midst. In John chapter 7, he stands up uh, in that great uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Again, identifying himself as the water of life. So people could hear it. Uh, John chapter 8 verse 12 identifies himself as the light of the world. So the people could hear it. And they understood what Jesus was claiming to be. Because at the very end of the chapter, they are arguing with him. And Jesus identifies himself with the divine name of the covenant, I am who I am, from Exodus 3.14. And they understood again, this is no veiled reference to divinity, because the word of God says that they picked up stones to kill him because they said he had blasphemed, claiming to be God. Come back to verse 24, they're saying, Tell us plainly. It is plain. By his actions and by his words, he has repeatedly disclosed himself as the Messiah. The Son of God, the incarnate one who has come to save his people from their sins. And Jesus turns to them in verse 26 and he says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Very important because it gets us now into the whole doctrine of the perseverance of the saints here. He looks at them and he says to them, Here's the reason why you have not accepted any of the plain evidence which I have presented. You're not my sheep. He says, this is the reason you don't believe though. Get that straight. This is the reason you don't believe because you are not my sheep. He doesn't say, because you don't believe, I can say you're not my sheep. He says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. You are not the ones who the Father has given me that I should die for and give eternal life to. 
Now Jesus goes on in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now verse 28, we get into the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. He says, Those very sheep, those ones who have been given to me, those ones who I will lay down my life for, He says, I will give them eternal life. What does that mean? It means Jesus now is talking about people who are saved. Very important. He's talking about people who have been saved. Who he has granted eternal life to them. It means they have been justified. It means they have been regenerated. It means they have been effectually called. It means they have been united to Christ. It means they've experienced the full working of the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation. I will give them eternal life. It's very important that we are aware of the kind of people he is speaking about. Not people who have merely professed to be changed. But people who have actually been changed, who have actually been given eternal life by Jesus Christ. Now here is what he says about those. He says they will never perish. They will never perish. It means that is, they will never experience eternal death. They will never do that. That's a promise. He says, if I have given them eternal life, they will never perish. If you are a believer this morning, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus' promise to you is that you will never perish. Never perish. You may fall down. You may stumble. You may sin. You may dishonor God. But Jesus says, you will never perish. Why? Because Jesus promises to preserve. Look at that. The rest of verse 28. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That verb snatch there is a very, very powerful word. I just want to give you some references to how it's used in other places in the Bible. Matthew 12, 29, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus says this. He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man who will plunder his house? Carry off, there's the same verb that is here. Snatch, carry away. To rip out of somebody else's possession and take away. How about Matthew 13, 19? He says, when he hears the word of God, does not understand it, and the evil one comes and he snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Reference there is to a, a bird dive-bombing and pulling seed out of something. So the, the devil snatches the word out of the heart, pulls it away. Acts 23.10, it's used of the Apostle Paul being dragged away by force, by a mob. It's not a passive word. It's an action verb. And he says, no one can take my sheep away from me. No one can take them out of my hand. I love how he says that. He says, this is, this is the position of the believer all of your life, is that you are clutched in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever wondered why you have been preserved in times of sin and in times of, of, of temptation, of of trouble? You ever wonder why uh, things that have happened to you uh, didn't cause you to lose your faith even though you might have experienced a season of doubt? 
And the answer is that, that you are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you could make it more personal in terms of this relationship that we have with Jesus. It's not just this abstract, sanitary, kind of neutral thing. Jesus is over there, we're just part of the sheep, whatever. It's, it's a very extremely personal way of referring to how we relate to the Lord Jesus. His hands are around us all of our lives. Now, if we stopped there and we didn't look at another passage in the entire Bible, we would be duty-bound to believe in the perseverance of the saints. Knowing that our life is resting comfortably in the hands of the Lord Jesus. But now he doubly reinforces this. He says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me, that is the sheep who Jesus has given eternal life to, again, he refers to this grant from the Father of these sheep. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. See, Jesus changes things up here just a little bit. Jesus changes things up a little bit. Verse 28, he says, uh, no one will snatch them away. Now, in verse 29, he says, uh, my father is greater. He's greater. He's, He's more powerful. And because of that, he says, no one is able. You see, in verse 28 he says, no one will. And now he says, the reason why no one will is given further explanation in verse 29, because no one is able. Nobody has the power and the strength. Why don't they have the power or the strength? Because no one is greater than my Father. The only way you could conceivably have one of God's elect walk away from Christ and lose their salvation is if somebody was greater than the Father. Is if there was a God bigger than God. That's the only way it could ever happen. Of course we know that that's blasphemy because there's only one God. So it's unambiguous here in John 10, 28 and 29. It's not as if we come to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints by just deducing that from a whole series of concepts that God has sovereignly elected, that Jesus has sovereignly atoned for, and God has sovereignly drawn. We believe the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because of those things, but we also believe because Jesus just flat out said it. Again, it's sola scriptura. Why do you believe what you believe? And the only good answer to that question is because Jesus told me. That's why I believe it. Remember, there's a lot of people who hear what Jesus says and they don't believe it because they don't like it. Remember, we saw that in John chapter 6. Jesus taught the truth and many so-called followers and disciples turned away from him because they said this is an offensive truth. You see, we believe what we believe because Jesus said it. Because the Bible tells me so. Jesus unambiguously teaches perseverance of the saints here. But it's not just Jesus that's taught throughout the rest of the Bible. By the way, we can go back to John chapter 6 and see that Jesus already taught it there. John 6.37 said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I won't cast them out. You see why you'll be preserved in your faith is because Jesus won't cast you out. You can sin, you can, you can stumble, you can fall, you can dishonor the Lord, you can do the wrong things and Jesus still won't cast you out if you are one of His. He will call you back to Himself. He will, he will convict you of your sins. He will drive you to repentance and confession, confession and back to Him. But Jesus won't cast you away even though you may act foolishly and disobediently. 
Jesus as a good shepherd will come after you and bring you back to Him. He will not cast you out. Verse 39 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all who He has given me, I will lose nothing. The metaphor of ownership is in the background, and Jesus says, I own you. I own you. And I own you because you have been given unto me. And as a good owner, as a good steward, Jesus takes care of his possessions. The only way, again, you could fall away from Jesus Christ is if Jesus was a bad, lazy owner. Not just taught by Jesus, taught by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.8. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus will confirm you to the end blameless. Confirm there literally means to cause you to be firm in the faith. That's what he says to the Corinthians at the outset of that letter. By the way, a letter we're going to study here. Just give you a quick plug of what's going to be happening in the upcoming weeks. So Lord willing, we're going to start a study, expositional study, through 1 Corinthians. At the very beginning of that book, and by the way, that church was filled with bad people. And that's why I'm excited about studying it. (coughs) To encourage me and you that the church is full of bad people like us. And for some wonderful reason, God loves us. And He cares for us. And He cares for His church even though it's full of bad people. And boy, it's full of a lot of bad people. We haven't come a long ways from Corinth. Uh, But what does he say to them? He says, you've been washed, you've been sanctified. And then he encourages these people who he's going to have to admonish and get a hold of and say, you need to straighten up your life. By the grace of God, he says to them, Jesus will confirm you to the end. He said, he will cause your faith to be firm. The only way you could fall away from Jesus is if Jesus failed to keep His promise. Ephesians 1.13 The Apostle Paul says, In Him that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now let's put some context on that verse. Ephesians 1.13 is in the flow of Paul listing a number of gifts which flow to believers on account of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful passage talking about the grace of God to His people. Uh, The first one in that passage that is enumerated, of course, is that you have been chosen. Sovereignly chosen by God the Father in eternity past in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the kind of person that Paul is speaking to in Ephesians 1.13. The kind of person who has been chosen. And then verses 4 and 5, we learn that those people were predestined by the love of God according to the good purpose of His will. And then we're told in verse 7 that they are also the kind of people who have experienced the washing of all of their sins the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Other uh, promises intervene here. But he gets to the end in verse 13 and he says, Here is also what happened to you. You were sealed. So the people were chosen the people who have been predestined by the love of God the Father, the people who have been redeemed from their sins and experienced the forgiveness of their sins, those people, he says, now have been sealed. Now, as you look across the biblical account of this word, you see that the word sealed 
indicates two things. It's a mark of ownership, and it's a way of securing something. A seal is a mark of ownership, and it's a way of securing something. One of the best commentators on the book of Ephesians, the top, one of the top Ephesians scholars in his field in all of the world is A.T. Lincoln. And here's what he says about this word here. He says, The seal is a mark of ownership and preservation of the owner's property. You see that. What Paul says to these saints who have been chosen, who have been predestined, who have been redeemed, he says they have been sealed. And what he means by that is they have been marked out by the Father as His possession. And because that mark is on them, He now is obligated as an owner to secure them and preserve them. You see why you will persevere in your salvation? And do you see why you will not fail to reach that salvation? And do you see why you will never fall away? Because God looks at you and He sees something you don't see. His seal on you. God has marked you out as His possession and will never allow you to escape. Again, because you are cradled in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1.6 The Apostle Paul says there, he says, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Um, by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of text here, okay? Because I want you to know that your faith isn't founded on one little text. It's what the Bible teaches. Again, we're Protestants. We believe in the Bible alone. Teaches us what we're to believe. Jesus told it was so, John chapter 10. Jesus told it was so, John chapter 6. Paul told us it was so, 1 Corinthians 1.8. He told us it was so, uh, one, uh, Ephesians 1.13. And now he tells us it's so, Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm confident. The verb is in the perfect tense. It is a settled fact. He says, I am confident. What are you confident of, Paul? I'm confident that he who began the good work... That refers to a God saving these Philippians. By the way, y'all remember the story of the salvation of the first members of the first church of Philippi, right? It was this beautiful lady, Lydia, who was sitting next to the scriptures reading the Bible with her girlfriends and they didn't understand the word of God. And the Apostle Paul came along preached the word of God to them and the word of God said that God ripped open her heart to believe. We talked about that last week. The first convert of the church of Philippi was somebody who got sovereignly converted. That's exactly what Paul means here. He says, he who began. God did it. God began the work. Now what Paul says is, he who began it will what? Perfect it. Bring it to completion. What Paul is saying to the Philippians is, God is a finisher. He doesn't just start things and then forget about them and leave them undone. He starts and he finishes. The only way you could fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ and fail to receive the full outworking of your salvation is if God was a liar and incomplete in the work that he does. Paul says God is a finisher. One last passage. Please turn there with me. One last passage is 1 Peter chapter 1. 
By the way, we have other cards in our pocket, but we're not going to play them today. We don't need to. First Corinth or First Peter one verse five. Another powerful proof text to demonstrate uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. First uh, Peter chapter one verse five, and we have to do some things to to give you the backdrop of this verse. But look at verse five here. It says, "Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time." Let's set this verse up in its context again. Who are? Looks back to verse 4. What do we learn in verse 4? Well, we learn in verse 4 that believers have an inheritance. See that in verse 4? It says, to obtain an inheritance. And then Paul describes the inheritance. He says, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven. Imperishable means that it can't ever wear out or decay through the passage of time. Can't ever wear out. It's undefiled. That means it has no sin in it. It's perfect. Free from contamination. It will never fade away. Ever. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. As long as you can think of, it will never fade away. And then he says, that inheritance is being reserved in heaven for you. Now who's the kind of people who get that inheritance? Well, you have to go back to verse 3. But the Apostle Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain. Remember guys, we, we have to put the pieces of the puzzle together as God formed the puzzle. And I know it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument and, and we have to think our way through it because you're not going to believe anything that you haven't thought through. Okay? The Bible presents arguments for its doctrines. It doesn't just say it happened or it is. It presents arguments. Verse 3 says that God has caused you to be born again. Sovereignty of God, regeneration. God caused it. Born again means that God sovereignly initiated new life in you. Now he said, for all those who God sovereignly initiated new life in by His sovereign grace, they are going to obtain an inheritance. You see that? The regenerate will obtain an inheritance. Now, it's those people who Paul talks about, or rather Peter talks about in verse 5. Those people now are the ones who are in view when the Apostle Paul says, who are protected? So ask yourselves a question right now. Who are the ones who are protected? The regenerate who have been appointed to obtain the inheritance. Okay? The regenerate are the ones who have been appointed to obtain an inheritance are the ones who are being spoken about in verse 5. And what does God, or rather Peter, say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about those people? He says they are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. In other words, that salvation, that inheritance which is spoken of in verse 5, is what you will receive most certainly. By the grace of God, you will enjoy and experience that inheritance. Why? Because Peter said, you are protected by the power of God. That word is such a rich word. Kept or protected. 
It's a military term. About a fortress that, that keeps the soldiers protected. So uh, they will be protected from incoming missiles and they can't escape. They will be protected inside of this great shield. That's you. What's the shield? The hands of the Lord Jesus that he talks about in 1028. He says, you are protected by the power of God through faith. Boy, you add up all those passages and it's hard to miss the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I hope you all see that. Jesus teaches it in John 10, John 6. Paul teaches it. 1 Corinthians 1. Ephesians 1.13, Philippians 1.6, Peter teaches it, 1 Peter 1.5, we've got other passages, but I, th- I think you see from here that the Bible is very clear. What is the biblical doctrine? The biblical doctrine and truth is that you are preserved in your salvation. If you have sovereignly, uh, graciously been given salvation, God preserves you in it. And so in view of all of this uh, massive evidence, we should ask the question, well, who would ever deny that you'll be preserved in your salvation? Who? Who, who, would, who would possibly make the argument that you will fail to see Jesus in glory and be like Him? Who would possibly make that argument? Well, the answer is most of evangelicalism today. <laughs> most of evangelicalism today would say that you can lose your salvation. Here's how the Arminians of old put it at the time of the Reformation. They said, true believers and regenerate can fall from justifying faith and lose their salvation forever. Why? Why would anybody argue that in view of this overwhelming evidence? And to be fair to you, as we walk away from this doctrine and walk away from Calvinism and the topic of TULIP, and go to a study of another part of Scripture, to be fair to you, I'm going to tell you why they teach this, and I'm going to show you why it's wrong. One passage in John chapter 15, verse 2 says, Jesus there says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away. So it sounds like some people will lose their salvation. That's what they say. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, God takes them away. Hebrews chapter 6 says that there are some who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and they have fallen away. Two passages. Two passages. And then there's a couple of examples of people who've fallen away from the faith in the New Testament. Paul says that he's turned Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. And he said, Demas has deserted him for the love of the world. So we have to answer the the, the criticism. I mean, there's all these overwhelmingly clear texts which teach, yeah, you're going to be preserved in the end. And then there's a few texts which say, well, what does that mean? Because it kind of sounds like it's going against what the Bible just said. And by the way, it's always a good rule of thumb to say this. Ask this question. Can the Bible ever contradict itself? Can the Bible ever contradict itself? Can it say one thing over here and then deny it over here? And the answer is no, because the Holy Spirit is perfect. He inspired the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit cannot contradict Himself. So how do we deal with these passages? Well, Hebrews chapter 6 can be answered fairly easily. 
by looking at the words actually say. At no point do these words say that these people were justified, regenerated, called, or chosen. It simply says they've been enlightened, enlightened, they've been instructed, they've tasted, they have an experience of the word. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit, means they've been exposed to His power. Nowhere does it ever call them saved by grace, chosen individuals who've been justified, adopted, received into the family of God, so forth and so on. It just doesn't say that anywhere. But Jesus gives us an understanding of how the Word can talk about people who have fallen away. Matthew chapter 13 in the the parable of the sower. Jesus says that there is some seed that has been sown on rocky ground. Some seed has been sown on rocky ground, and he says they receive it with joy, but uh, since the person has no firm root in himself, they fall away. In other words, the word temporarily comes into life. It makes them joyful. There's an experience of something mysterious and marvelous. And by the way, the Word of God is so powerful that it can for a time work on somebody's heart to the point that there looks like something has happened when there's actually been no regeneration. That's what Jesus is saying. The next verse he talks about seed that's been sown among thorny thistles. And he says, for a while they received the the word, but when the worry of the world and the deceitful wealth of the world choke out the word of God, it becomes unfruitful. He says, there's another kind of person who again experiences uh, the power of the word for a season. But there's no salvation. There's no change of life. It's just an experience of the power of the word. But then he says in the last verse, verse 23, sometimes the word is sown on good soil, and when it does, what happens? He says it bears fruit. But notice the key there is the the, the seed that is sown on good soil, a regenerate heart. Now, when the word comes into a regenerate heart, it infallibly changes them and puts them in the category of saved people. And they show that by their life. You see why I started off this morning talking about the, the Protestant principle of how to interpret the Bible, the rule of faith? Because we have to interpret passages according to the totality of the teaching of the Word of God. Sometimes there are statements in Scripture which seem to flat out contradict other statements. And the only way you can get out of that dilemma is to say... God never contradicts Himself. But that there are good explanations for why things are said. And then we can go to other passages of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, faith with faith, doctrine with doctrine. We're able to see what the Word of God is teaching. And the overwhelmingly clear truth of Scripture is every person who is truly saved, truly regenerated, justified, chosen of God, will never fall short of their salvation. God has chosen them. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. As we conclude this morning, we have a few applications as we think about this doctrine. And I think the first thing we want to say this morning is that not everyone who professes to be a believer is a believer. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 13. Not everybody who says that they are saved and seems to have had a temporary experience of the Word of God is a believer. Jesus said it. It's true. 
And that's why uh, the Word of God at times challenges people who are in the church to evaluate themselves. To be sure, to make their calling and election sure. To look at themselves and to say, is there a real, vital, living faith in me? How do I know that there is? Because of the fruit that will accompany the changed life. Christian, you are called this morning to evaluate yourself in terms of the standards of the Word of God. Is there evidence that God is working in you? Is there fruit? It's not a scare tactic. It's, it's proper. The Word of God calls us to say, is my life in some way, in a small way, beginning to match up with what God said? Not everyone who professes faith is actually saved. The second of all, this morning, it means that those who have truly been saved sometimes will stumble. Sometimes... Those who have professed faith will stumble. The two greatest examples of faith, or two of the, some of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible, David and Peter, had terrible falls. David committed adultery and murder. Peter denied the Lord. Pretty bad stuff. You see... Sometimes true believers can stumble. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but sometimes they do stumble. I wonder if we have anybody in that category here this morning. You see, one of the devil's lies is that sometimes if we do stumble, one of the things that he tries to deceive us into believing is that now there's no relationship with the Lord, that we've blown it so bad that God would never take us back. And that causes us to become apathetic and we just stay in our sins. We don't care and we just want to check out and give up and lose hope. Maybe you believe that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints means that you would never stumble. But if you believe that, you're wrong. Sometimes truly saved believers do stumble. But when they stumble... They follow the pattern given by David and Peter. They weep over their sins bitterly, confess them to God, repent, and lead a new life. People of God this morning, I don't know, maybe there is somebody here who has stumbled. And maybe now you are wondering, well, maybe God just wouldn't take somebody like me back. Well, the truth of the matter is that God takes people back. You see, He won't even allow your sin to snatch you out of your hand or the hand of Jesus Christ. If you've stumbled, God calls you back. And He says, you will not fail to reach the hope of salvation. You will not. And if that's you this morning, there's a pattern to follow. Weep bitterly over your sins. Confess them, repent of them, and turn to live according to what God has called you to in His Word. If you do that, you will experience those hands of Christ holding you in your salvation. Then finally, lastly this morning, what does it mean to confess the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? It means that God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. We've seen this in almost all of the points as we've walked through this 
a sermon series on TULIP. We saw that God gets all the glory when we preached on unconditional election. Uh, The fact of the matter is God sees us in our sins and misery, equally ruined, equally headed for destruction, and God sovereignly picks one here, picks one there, and sovereignly chooses some unto salvation. And because He does that, God gets all the glory. We saw in the Doctrine of Limited Atonement that God sent forth Jesus to die for certain of His people. That means that Jesus died for His sheep. And by doing so, actually redeemed you. God gets all the glory. We saw in the Doctrine of Irresistible Grace that God drags His people unto Jesus Christ for salvation. He does it by His force, by His sovereignty. That means God gets all the glory. We come to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints when Jesus says, Not one of them will perish. I will give them eternal life. And no one will snatch them out of hand because my Father is greater than all. No one is able to take them out of my Father's hand. It means God gets all the glory. By the way, that is a fundamental principle of what it means to be a Protestant. We begin this morning with a foundational principle. What it means to be a Protestant is that we believe... In Sola Scriptura, that all of what we believe and practice and do flows from the Word of God. And the last of the foundational principles of what it means to be a Protestant is that God gets all the glory. Why? Because God chose us unto salvation. God planned our salvation. God sent the Son for our salvation. God sovereignly brought us salvation. And now finally God sovereignly and graciously preserves us in our salvation. God gets all the glory. What does it mean that you're a Calvinist this morning? It means that you believe that God gets all the glory. Because He alone has done wondrous things. If you don't take anything else away from our study, on the doctrine of salvation summarized in that acronym TULIP, you must take this away. God gets all the glory. Because God has sovereignly and graciously done everything to save you and to bring you into fellowship with Him through His Son. Let's pray a second.